Hi, Dora Hope Northeast. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Kyle Gallagher. Uh, you may have met uh, my wife, Andrea, and I just wanted to say I, I truly miss you all, and particularly those I have not seen face-to-face -face in this season, and look forward to doing that soon, and hope it's sooner rather than later. Uh, so I'm doing this recording from my home in uh, southeast Portland, and I'm reading to you Micah 5, 1 through 6, and Cam has asked that I uh, then pray the theme and uh, content of this passage over you all. So please turn to Micah chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Father, we just uh, thank you for your word and thank you for your people. God, I just pray, Lord, um, that you just go before us and that you would just be our peace, uh, particularly in this tumultuous time. And God, I just want to thank you for the way you choose the little things and the little places to work out uh, your, your plan of salvation. And God, I just thank you, Lord, that you have thrown our sin into the sea and that one day we will see you face to face. Um, uh, Father, we just believe this and uh, we also Pray, Lord, that you'd help our unbelief. God, would you strengthen your people? Would you give us joy and peace in this uh, really tough season? And God, I just want to lift up Cam to you, Lord. Um, yeah, Lord, would he just preach in your strength and wisdom and energy and that you just fill him with your spirit and give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and trust in you. And yeah, Lord, just thank you for your people. Thank you for today, and um, yeah, Lord, we just can't wait to see you face to face. And in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks to our Hope Northeast. Hope to see you all soon. Take care. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Cameron. It's great to be with you. Um, and I just want to just want to start off by saying, for some of you, uh, this is going to be the most uncomfortable sermon of this series yet. Um, not because it deals with like the judgment of God or some difficult depiction of violence, uh, not because it's going to be the most personally convicting of sin, uh, it, it most likely, um, but because we haven't had Thanksgiving yet. Uh, and this passage is going to make us talk about Christmas. And I know how some of you get, okay? I know how some of you get about the celebrating Christmas before Thanksgiving thing. Um, so you're just going to have to deal with it. The, the angry emails, you're welcome to send them. I'll do my best to respond, but uh, we are going to have to talk about Christmas 
just just before we get to Thanksgiving. So I hope hope you can bear with me. But uh, today's passage, as as uh, Kyle read for us beautifully, it includes what's probably it's it's one of the two most famous verses in Micah. Chapter 5, verse 2 is just one of these classic Christmas passages, and we'll, we'll make the connection as we get going. Um, but I just, I just want to prep you for that, okay? Okay, now that everyone's ready, we can, we can jump in. Um, well, Micah picks up uh, in chapter 5, uh, in some ways continuing the train of thought from, from the previous section in chapter 4. Um, he's continuing kind of this interplay that we've seen between sort of the immediate uh, sort of dire circumstances that the kingdom of Judah find them, finds themselves in, um, and sort of this far-off distant hope. But his attention turns slightly here. And so let's, let's pick up in verse 1. We, we see, uh, once again, an indication that he's talking about there is trouble here for the kingdom of Judah, for God's people. And he's just going to call it like it is. Verse 1, he says, Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Um, Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And then even in verse 3, we note again that it says, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. And we'll talk about what that time is going to be. But once again, this is God's act of judgment against his unfaithful people, his people that have uh, disregarded their responsibility to follow him faithfully and thus showcase what he's like to the nations around them. And so God has been telling them through Micah, he's going to give them over to these rival nations again and again. And we're going to, again, hit these themes (laughs) several more times before we finish this book. But we're once again right back in it here. And it's interesting to note what what he's pointing out here is that Israel's king, the current king, um, is humiliated. He's humiliated and they're going to be given over to the rival nations. Um, This idea of of a rod striking uh, the king's cheek, um, the judge's cheek, to be struck on the cheek is generally considered a gesture of contempt, says one commentator. This implies both contempt of the nations as well as the impotence of Judah's ruler to respond. The idea is that, is that the, the rival nation of Assyria can get so close uh, that the, the, the defenses are so powerless uh, that they can get so close to just slap them on the cheek and, and, and disrespect them just flagrantly. Um, Israel's king at the time was, was at the time of this particular oracle within Micah was probably King Hezekiah. And we just get this picture of him unable to do anything. He's just, he's just ineffectual, uh, even in his complete humiliation from the rival nations. Um, and we see that the Assyrians are going to come into the land later on and that they're going to tread in our palaces. They're going to destroy uh, before Babylon ultimately comes and takes the people away into captivity. And I think there's a reminder here um, something that I've, I've oddly been thinking more and more about uh, in the months past, which is that really no kingdom on our earth is guaranteed survival, <laughs> apart from the kingdom of God, of course. Um, but no earthly human kingdom is guaranteed survival, let alone flourishing. Um, the nations and the empires have come and gone, and Assyria... 
Uh, They happen to be the monumental power at this time. Uh, They are no longer. Same for Babylon. Um, Same for the, the other nations that would displace them. And even for us in the United States, like we, uh, we can hope and pray for the flourishing of our country, for our country to be a, a presence of goodness and justice in the world, uh, for the people of our country to thrive. Um, but we are by no means guaranteed that. Uh, and so that can't ultimately be where our hope is. Um, maybe that's neither here nor there, but just felt comp- compelled to share that. But here's the point for now. Even though Israel and Judah in particular is facing this moment of sort of national humiliation, and even though that that humiliation is the result, it's the consequence of their own sin, their own rebellion against God, and the failure of sort of their leadership class to, to steer them into faithfulness, God is still present. This prophecy here is going to be about the fact that God is still present. He is still with them. Um, He is still going to provide hope through the chaos. And that's a reality that we can bank on whether or not we are, um, no matter how closely we we relate to the circumstances of the kingdom of Judah, at your lowest moment, if you are one of God's people, in fact, if you've bent the knee to Christ, um, even at your lowest moment, even at, even at your moment of greatest rebellion, God offers you forgiveness and grace uh, and closeness um, and hope. Um, so what does that hope look like for Judah here? Well, let's read verses 2 through 5. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And the idea here is that, look, things are terrible. Things are bad. But God is going to send his true ruler, his true king, his true shepherd. Um, When they hear this, that the shepherd, this ruler, this king is going to come. What do you imagine they were hoping for? Like, what what would you hope for if if you were given some sort of prophetic insight from God that, oh, the, the great ruler is going to come and he's going to rule over America or he's going to be the new governor of Oregon or the mayor of Portland or whatever. Um, or maybe the pastor of your church. I don't know. Uh, what would you imagine? What, what would you be looking for? What kinds of qualities would tick those boxes in terms of this great coming leader. I often think like, who's our, who's the sort of current, like uh, go-to sort of tough guy action star right now. We don't really have action stars anymore in the way we did in like the eighties. There's not really an equivalent of like your Sylvester Stallone, your Arnold Schwarzenegger, honestly, much to our detriment. Okay. Uh, but do we have that? I, maybe, maybe it's like Jason Momoa. He's, he seems tough. He seems cool. Uh, 
But it's like, you, you know that they would have been imagining someone of sort of obvious prominence, um, someone credentialed, uh, someone tough, someone domineering maybe. Sometimes that's a characteristic that people look for in leadership. Um, that one will get you into trouble. But even just looking at modern history, um, we can see countless examples of nations turning to this sort of strongman idea of, or, or like an authoritarian dictator in times of struggle. The one who says, hey, if you just give me the power, I'll get it done. I'll do the thing that needs to be done. I'll, I'll rescue us from our hardships. And so maybe they were looking for someone like that. But these, these verses give us a description uh, of the character of this ruler that God's going to send. So let's see, let's see what God uh, spoke of through Micah here. First, we see that, that this king is going to be one of a unique humility. Um, this idea of, of, of him coming from Bethlehem Ephrathah. Um, this is talking about this, this district in Judah um, where Bethlehem was located. And uh, Bruce Waltke, commentator, says this. He says, Bethlehem, too insignificant to be mentioned by the cartographer of the book of Joshua, or even in Micah's catalog of Judah's cities, um, but but the Bethlehem that we now we all know Bethlehem, but uh, because of the Christmas story, because we know that's where Jesus was born. Um, but this was a, a sort of backwoods place of no uh, repute, um, just a few miles away from Jerusalem, uh, but but not a place of great prominence. <laughs> Um, it was such a small town that, that it wasn't even listed by Joshua, as Walt Key said, um, when, he, when he was looking at all the 150 towns and cities that were in the area. Um, that's how insignificant it was, not even bearing mention uh, in the book of Joshua. It, it was really notable only for being the town that King, King David's family was from uh, and for nothing else. And, and even at that, it was sort of notable in the King David story and the rise of David's, David to prominence. Uh, Bethlehem was notable again as this marker of sort of humility, sort of the unexpectedness of King David, the sort of um, not possessing the outward splendor that might be expected. Even Micah here, he says that, that, that Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, it's this sort of little runt <laughs> city or town, we should say. Um, so, so, so God's chosen king, his chosen ruler, is going to be of this unique humility. I think that's what he's getting at here. Humble origins. The second thing we see about, about this ruler is that he's going to have a Davidic lineage. And so that, that, that indicator that he's going to be from Bethlehem not only speaks to humility, but it speaks to the fact that he's going to be in the line of David. Bethlehem was the same place where the humble shepherd king David, the greatest of Israel's kings, was from. And even in David's story, the, the fact that he was from Bethlehem was sort of this marker of the unexpectedness of, of him as king, sort of the humility that he possessed. Um, but, but David went on to be the, the most renowned, celebrated king. Uh, his reign is, was looked back on as the kind of the glory years of Israel. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so the, the, the ruler is going to be a Davidic king. He's going to be in David's family, in David's line. It's going to be a further fulfillment. The fact that God promised David this eternal throne that would never end. So here's, a, here's a, another prophecy related to that idea. Um, so they're to expect a new David and perhaps a, a return uh, of, of sort of the glory days, if you will, in this coming king.
A third thing we see is that there's a unique sender. Um, God says that this king is going to be for me through Micah and that he's going to be from of old or from ancient days. Um, he, God is the one who is going to be sending this ruler. He's not just going to come arbitrarily or out of nowhere like, oh, it so happens this is going to happen. But God is intentionally, like proactively working it to bring this ruler to the nation. And then this from of old or from ancient days, some commentators read that as sort of talking about the, the eternality of Christ. Like, oh, it's the eternal son of God who is going to be incarnated. And we, of course, believe that. Uh, but I, I think it's more likely in this verse that he's talking about sort of the, um, the prophetic nature. Being from of old, it's in fulfillment of these ancient prophecies. It's probably what he has in mind here. But nevertheless, a unique sender. God is the one bringing this ruler. And then a fourth thing, we see that there's going to be this unique goodness to this ruler. Um, he will stand and shepherd his flock it says he will finally be the sort of just good king that Israel has needed. Um, he, he will be an even greater shepherd than David. Once Israel was split into the northern and southern kingdom, um, there were so many bad kings, like so many. There were some good ones, but, but so many bad kings that just brought um, chaos and confusion and sin and idolatry into the nation. Um, and there's just this idea that in contrast to them, in contrast to the pitiful shepherds we've already been reading about in Micah up to this point, this one will shepherd well. The leader will no longer trample the people. He'll no longer take advantage, but he will be one of selfless humility. He will care. He will tend to the flock and all these beautiful things. And, and this Micah 5 actually helps us appreciate I read one commentator said this, Jesus' famous words in John 10, when John said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He is the great shepherd. When the shepherd of the flock comes, he rules his flock with gentleness, being aware of their needs. And in the end, what God is asking and requiring of his people is not perfection, but submission. He does not call us to be flawless, but to follow. To follow the good shepherd. A fifth thing we see is unique power. It says, uh, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, that is where he's going to rule from. That's what he's going to shepherd from. Um, he will rule on God's behalf in God's power. And he's not going, the idea here is he's not going to establish some agenda other than the agenda of God. He's going to stick to the script, the good, perfect, true, and beautiful script uh, that God has, not some alternative agenda. And he's going to have the power to execute that, uh, which is encouraging. And then finally, last thing, we see that his rule brings unique blessings. There are unique blessings of this king, of this ruler. We see unity, the idea that, quote, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. I think that might be a reference to the northern and southern kingdoms finally coming back together uh, and all those dispersed sort of, uh, sort of people of God being reunited. We see that there's going to be security to the ends of the earth. That's something we really talked about a lot last week. Um, and that he will be their peace, again, something we talked about last week. All those promises 
those beautiful promises, those hope-filled promises from chapter 4. We see this figure is going to be the one, this ruler is going to be the one who brings those things about. He brings unique blessings. So, I, I want to turn to commentator Stephen Um, who I, I think summarizes uh, all this really beautifully. He says, this passage emphasizes the weakness of the restorer. But then in the same verse, we discover that he's also strong. Weakness and strength, humility and power, they do not usually coexist. But here we find this unexpected restorer who comes in a gentle and weak way, but who at the same time is Quote, from of old. And then Um goes on to say, This is what's so beautiful about our Restorer. If he's only humble, weak, and near us, then he can emphasize with our feelings, but he can't do anything to change or to deliver us from our circumstances. If he only has power and is of old, if he's magnificent and majestic, if he's the Lion of Judah, then he has the power to change our lives, but he seems uncaring. And detached from us. But what this passage is showing is that our restorer is both good and great. Like, that's a combination that you you can almost never find <laughs> in a leader. That they are sincerely good and sincerely great. That they have your best in mind and the means and the power to protect that best. And to bring it. That's what this passage is about. That's what's so unique about this ruler that God's promising. And then to conclude the section with verse 6, it says that they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So the idea is that this king is going to raise up these other princes and these other rulers. He's going to delegate to these other good sort of inspired leaders as well. Um, and he's going to deliver them from their enemies. It speaks of uh, military victory over the Assyrian who is causing so much havoc in the land. Um, so the king will prevail over them. Now, here's the thing. This prophecy, um, in, in a day where they're sort of in this fragile, uh, war-torn environment where Assyria and eventually Babylon are going to be breathing down their necks, um, Israel's expectation reading a passage like this would have been for a, a military conqueror. Um, and, and the reality is that the Assyrians were ultimately defeated. They were ultimately driven out of the land um, not too long after this. And then even the Babylonians that took them into captivity, they were ultimately defeated and replaced. So was this prophecy fulfilled then? Well, in part. But you've got to remember, like the story of the world you could categorize it a number of ways, but one way you could talk about it is the story of just empires replacing one after another. After the Assyrians, the Babylonians were in power, and, but they were defeated. After, the, after they were defeated, the Persians were in power. After the Persians were defeated, the Greeks were in power. After the Greeks were in power, uh, the Romans were in power, which is what we find in the time of the New Testament. So just these empires defeating and replacing one another. Even though Assyria was defeated, as Micah 5 talks about, there was still a bigger, badder enemy always around the corner, wasn't there? And there still is. Um, the problems of war and of evil empire, of subjugation, uh, of violence, let's just get broader, of death. 
that these are all fundamentally rooted in the same thing, the sin that resides in every human heart. And so uh, some other answer was going to have to be supplied here. Um, it, it couldn't just be uh, to get all these glorious things that Micah 4 and 5 are talking about. It couldn't just be that, oh, the Assyrians have to be defeated. No, the meat of these prophecies would be fulfilled hundreds of years later, actually. And now we get to our Christmas, our Christmas story here, Matthew 2. Here, here what, how Matthew 2 incorporates this, 2, 1 through 8. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's sort of an amplification of our Micah verse. Um, verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So the Messiah came. This great ruler came, but not as they would expect. Not as anyone would expect. But, but, but as who Micah had promised, nonetheless, he wasn't born in Jerusalem, but in little Bethlehem. Um, but, but the reversal of expectation goes even deeper than that. Um, because he wasn't just a, a, a human king or, or a, a human ruler. He was somehow the son of God in human flesh. Like God's answer to the perpetual problems of the world uh, and his people, it wasn't just this great human king in the line of David. It was Emmanuel, God with us, who is also a human king in the life, in the line of David. And it was the second person of the Trinity who existed from eternity past, the one through whom all was made, becoming a man. Um, we get desensitized to the story of what really happened that first Christmas, but it is the most shocking, shocking, like scandalous, upside down thing you could imagine. I, I like the way J.I. Packer, a theologian, wrote it, put it. He said this, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human, unable to, to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality, and the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. And so God himself 
entered the human story in, and in even more humble circumstances than anyone could have expected. Even though they're talking about Bethlehem and the humility of this king, think about this. He was incarnated not as a, a fully formed conquering hero. He didn't just appear and he's this great sort of warrior king hero person. But he incarnated as an infant. He was birthed. Um, he was born not in an opulent palace, as one might expect, but he was born in a barn, laid in a manger. Um, he was raised not near sort of the halls and centers of power in his day, but in the backwoods town of Nazareth, where people would ask, could, could anything good even come out of Nazareth? Um, as he began to minister and teach, he ministered not with sort of credentialed religious authority as some obviously great man, uh, but as this itinerant teacher outside of the religious establishment. Um, he was followed not by the best and the brightest, but by the willing. And he spent most of his time not with the outwardly powerful and righteous, but with the poor and the obvious sinners. And he taught not about military conquest. In fact, he chided his disciples that you want to live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. That's not my program. But he taught about enemy love, about servanthood, about self-sacrifice. So how would Jesus who we now see is this, this prophesied king, the anointed true Messiah of Israel, how would he save and shepherd his people if it wasn't going to be military conquest? Well, by dying in their place. I don't know which is more shocking, the incarnation or the cross. Maybe we don't have to choose. But he would save them by dying in their place. He was enthroned, not with royal garb, with a crown of thorns, with a mocking purple robe placed over him, caked in blood, with a scepter put in his hand before he was hoisted up onto the cross and publicly executed as a common criminal. His salvation came not with the sword, but on the cross by taking his people's sin and guilt into himself and by freely gifting them his righteousness and the power to actually live into that righteousness, to walk after that righteousness, and to live as a witness and as a representative of his love, his justice, his mercy, his grace, and inviting others to be part of this shocking, surprising, upside-down kingdom. And so God did far more than just raise a leader to end a military conflict between Israel and Assyria, which is what people just would have been thinking in the short-sighted way that, that we'd often do. But we now see this side of, of, of the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, that actually what he did is he sent this ruler who was going to come and do everything necessary to save and heal the twisted heart of you and the twisted heart of me and the twisted heart of every human that's ever walked on this earth from which every other act of evil is downstream. All other sin, all other rebellion, all other injustice, all other 
everything is downstream from, from the problem of sin that corrupts and corrodes our hearts. He came to deal with that, offer freedom from that, offer healing from that, offer forgiveness from that for anyone who would simply say, yes, I receive you as my king. I trust you. I have faith. I believe. The free gift received through faith. And that's the age we live in where we... we uh, we have tasted his goodness. We've seen both his power and his humility and the way they intertwine. Uh, for so many of us, we've, we've said, yes, I believe I want to follow you, Jesus. I, I receive the salvation you offer. Now let me follow after you more closely every day. And we live in this, again, time between the times until another day comes, uh, a day that he's promised when the same Christ, the very same Christ, uh, who, who came in humility and, and came to ultimately die, where he will return to this world that he made, finally to decisively put an end to it all. It's all the bad stuff. To put an end to all sin, to put an end to all rebellion against his goodness, to all evil. He'll put death to death. This prophecy in Micah was fulfilled in the most surprising way possible. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was fulfilled in the incarnation of God in human flesh as this little baby. Uh, it was fulfilled through this man who, who was, did not live a life of outward greatness, but who was in fact the greatest man who ever lived, the one who was fully God, fully man. Uh, and who it was fulfilled not through him taking up the sword, but through him receiving it <laughs> through death on the cross uh, to save humanity for himself. And that same Christ is going to return fully to finally fulfill what Micah is even gesturing at when he comes to put all things right at his second coming with all the blessings we talked about last week. And so um, may this prophecy be an encouragement to us I pray that it would help us to, to think more deeply about Jesus this week. I pray that our, our praise of him uh, would be stirred. I pray that our love for him would be increased. Um, I pray that, uh, yeah, as we go about our week, as we enter into um, sort of the holiday season, that um, who he is, what's so unique about it, what he's done and what he's going to do would loom large in our hearts and in our minds. It's good news for us. And it's good news for our neighbors if they can receive it. Um, Door of Hope, I love you. I uh, hope you have a wonderful week uh, as we enter into the holiday season here. Uh, may Christ loom large in our hearts and in our minds.